Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Solber with the American Journal of Managed Care, and I have with me today Joe Kvidar, who's a professor of dermatology at Harvard Medical School and the president of the American Telehealth Association. He's also the co-chair of the AMA's Digital Medicine Payment Advisory Group and editor-in-chief of NPJ Digital Medicine, which is in the prestigious Nature Research Group. And we invited him today to give us an update on telehealth and who could be better than the president of the ATA. Um, So I thought I'd start out just by having you tell us in general terms, Joe, what's been going on with telehealth since the pandemic? Talk about the explosion. Sure. No, and thanks so much for inviting me. And it's great to, to uh, connect with you again, Pat. Over the years, we've had a lot of fun. It's, um, it's literally been an explosion, at least in the beginning. And we can talk about the leveling off, too. I'm sure that's of interest. But what happened was we brought two things, I think, that really can boil it down. We brought the doctor's uh, office into your living room, and, and we successfully did that. For a couple of months, it was the only way we really could deliver non-emergent care. And um, I'm happy to say patients took to it and doctors took to it as well. And we made telehealth a household word, which I'm almost 30 years into the journey now. And for me, that that was an amazing thing too, to not ever have to not that we have cocktail parties, but to ever show up at one and, um, and, sit and say, I do telehealth and have people stare at me like they don't know what it is. So fundamentally, we've changed the landscape of how we view care delivery, what the right uh, percentage of care delivery that's telehealth is, how that will sort out from a reimbursement regulatory perspective. Those are all things in front of us, but people know what it is now. They've had good experiences with it and they want to do more. So I wanted to dive into that, uh, uh, the regulatory issues, because uh, I have a sense that those were really instrumental in making this happen. You know, doctors not having to have licenses everywhere and actually getting decent reimbursement. Um, But I think they've expired or they're going to expire. Can you give us an update on what you think are the most important regulations that um, have really made this possible? I'd be happy to. So they really fall into three areas. One is a reimbursement, the second one being technology or HIPAA related, and the third being licensure. And we can go through each. Right now, to to just address one comment you made, uh, we're still in a public health emergency. Uh, At the end of July, the government extended that another 90 days, which puts us into October. So for now, all of these things are, con- are staying uh, in, in play for healthcare delivery. Uh, the, the reimbursement one is, is, is very much probably the most influential and the most wide open. Um, Medicare in mid-March declared as part of the public health emergency that they would pay for all telehealth uh, interactions, which includes video, uh, audio only, um, remote monitoring, uh, asynchronous, all, all kinds of ways for you to communicate with your doctor using technology are now compensated by Medicare and Medicaid. And of course, most states are still in a uh, some sort of public health emergency scenario as well with executive orders demanding that health plans pay for these things as well. So the reimbursement landscape, we think, is very fertile. Now, 
we're just getting those claims back. So what, what they said they would pay for, what they're paying for, there's still, it's happening in real time, but it, it seems very encouraging. And, and the last thing I'll say on reimbursement before I move on is that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, their director is a woman named Seema Verma, is the most telehealth friendly administrator we've ever seen in that position. And she has multiple times said, and this is a quote, the genie's out and it's not going back in the bottle. So I think we have a lot of positivity there and I, I hope we can ride that to something that makes a great deal of sense for our patients. The second, as I mentioned, was technology or, or HIPAA related. There, the way this came out was that clinicians could use FaceTime, Google Hangout, Skype, anything they wanted. What made that possible was the government saying they wouldn't prosecute people for not having a HIPAA arrangement with their vendor. That was the fundamental thing that allowed us to do that. We all suspect that that will change. Uh, it's too chaotic. It's, there's too much patient risk of something happening when you have such a chaotic IT landscape. And sure enough, a lot of those companies uh, are now be preparing themselves to sign HIPAA uh, agreements with clinicians so they continue to offer these services and that just means that they're becoming compliant with all the privacy and security requirements so we'll have a broad range of technologies I don't know how broad whether it include all of those uh, and uh, it'll be better than it was uh, before and then the third is licensure once again 49 now out of 50 states have eased licensure requirements so clinicians can practice across state lines effectively. That's a big deal. I think of all of them, that's the one that's the least clear on what the outcome is going to be. It's governed at the state level by the state medical boards and that's 50 different organizations. And they, what they have, they have in common is that they all view their state as their fiefdom and they wanna protect their providers, oh, by the way, yes, they do make sure that we're licensed and credentialed and all that stuff, and it's important, but they're also very much protecting the economic position of those providers in that state, and so it's not clear how that will go. Maybe we'll have regional agreements between states, something, for instance, in my case, perhaps we'll have a regional uh, licensure agreement with uh, New England states, New York, New Jersey, something like that. But that one's least clear uh, of the three. Um, so I think in summary, all of those things were relaxed. They won't all go back to where we were before. There will be some easy path for us to continue to treat our patients using this uh, care delivery method. Well, I have to agree with Seema Burma. I don't think you're putting this genie back in the bottle. Um, and, and I wouldn't want to see it go back in the bottle. Right. Um, so, you know, you touched on uh, uh, changes in technology. And we've come a long way from, what was it, 20 years ago when American Well hit the scene. And um, I'm, I'm wondering if you can tell us what breakthroughs in technology have made it easier for doctors and patients to participate in virtual visits, and what's holding us back? Yeah, thanks, that's a wonderful question. I think um, on, the, on the plus side, smart devices, uh, wireless bandwidth, uh, 4G, maybe 5G coming, we'll see how that all works. 
that that's been really pivotal. And if you think back to the days before we had the not just the iPhone itself, but that user interface, it's so powerful. And it, of course, now extends to all the the Google uh, portfolio as well, where it's easy. It's it's you push on something with your finger and things happen. All those gestures, all those things that made it easy to work with uh, touch sensitive devices, all of that was paving the way. Uh, now, so many people Skype with loved ones or they FaceTime with loved ones. They're totally comfortable with video technology as a way for communication. And that, therefore, when a doctor says, I think we have to do this by video, it's not a shock. It's, it's like, oh, that may, maybe that makes sense. We did, you know, I just talked to my grandchildren. So I think those, all those things, and it's like so many other stories that involve tech. Uber is a great example where you had to have GPS, you had to have mobile, you had to have all these things and it came together in a service that people just said, oh my God, why didn't we do that before? It's a little bit like that. Um, now, what do we have left? Well, several things. One is bandwidth is not universal, sadly. We, we ATA advocates for universal broadband as a utility. It should be a, not to be over dramatic, but it should be a human right to have a broadband. Um, and that, of course, extends not just to rural areas, but there are urban areas where that's a problem as well. Number two, not everyone can afford a smart device. That's a real, that's probably the biggest challenge is that this, this whole notion of disparities. Um, and so one of the things that I mentioned earlier was that Medicare does, and, and most of the private payers, pay for audio only. And we can do a lot with audio only, and that is a, a way for us to cross the digital divide. So that's, a, that's an important uh, thing. So we bet, better bandwidth, better access to, to the devices. And I think finally, even though I said earlier how intuitive the touch interface is, when you start to add in things like remote monitoring devices and Bluetooth, and it starts to get really complicated really quick. And one of the things we've learned over the years is that patients, when they're consumers, they expect consumer level ease of use in healthcare. We, we haven't crossed that bridge yet in, in really all aspects. So I think making it easier for our patients to, to, to interact with us is still required. So I, I, would, I would call out those, those three things. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up audio only because a lot of people think when they hear telehealth that it has to be video. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I'm a Kaiser Permanente member, and I remember the first time they said to me, oh, well, the specialist will give you a phone call. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought she's not going to see me. <laughs> and it turned out after I thought about it, well, there was no reason to see me for that particular problem. Right. And it worked really well. Um, but I, since you brought up uh, making things more difficult, and I'm not sure if this question tells me that it's making it more difficult or maybe making it easier, and that is, what, what about the technologies that are on the market now um, that are being developed so you could go beyond just a conversation? So you could actually have a, the patient could have, you could send them a, a, a little package of digital devices, uh, a stethoscope, um, you know, maybe the cardia, um, who knows? But how do you feel about that? Is that going to make it more complicated or is that going to expand the ability of doctors to do more via telehealth? Yeah, that's a wonderful uh, conversation uh, to have. I, I think one of the things that I have been 
saying to my, my clinical colleagues is that, because again, we're in this phase now where everyone's kind of going back and saying, okay, I, now that I can see people in the office, what actually should I be doing by telehealth? And the answer is, if you have the information that you need to make a diagnosis of change of care plan and you don't need to touch the patient, then you can do it by telehealth. But you're right, uh, audio or video only has limitations if you don't have other data points. So there are three kinds of tools that I think are gonna blossom over the next few years and each one of them will do exactly what you say, which is make that video or audio interaction much more powerful because you're giving the doctor more uh, data points to help make a decision about your care. So the first one uh, you alluded to, which is home devices. Uh, there are a number of them on the market. Um, Tidal Care is an example, but there are others. And a lot of times these devices can do everything from take your temperature, to look in your throat, to look in your ear, to take your heart rate, to do an EKG, all in one easy to use tool. And, and that's really appealing. The challenge is how do we get it into your hands so that when you need it, you have it. Uh, it's one thing to say, well, well, we'll send you a package, but I've got, it's 10 o'clock at night and I've got a sore throat. I kind of want to be seen now. I don't want to wait for a package. Health plans should send it to everybody when they sign up for their. Yeah, something like that. You know, I, I've, I've, uh, I haven't had the chance to do this. Things have, have happily for me gotten busy, but I, I know there's a story in how every household now has a thermometer in the medicine cabinet. Some, when I was a kid, we had a digital, we had a mercury thermometer in the medicine cabinet. I don't know. So it, it preceded the late fifties, early sixties, because we all had one. But at some point in history, that became a thing where everyone had that. So we need to figure out how to do that with these devices. The, the second category, and one that I'm uh, quite excited, well, I am excited about all of them, but this one is a lot of fun, is, is digital biomarkers. And there are a number of companies that are using the signals that come off of your mobile device to learn more about you. One that I'm uh, an advisor to is, is a South Africa, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Australian firm uh, called Resap, based on the sound of your cough, they can diagnose pneumonia, bronchitis, asthma, etc. So you can picture again, you're sick, you call the doctor with your video, and then as soon as you start in being interviewed and coughing, they have data enough, they don't need to listen to your lungs to make a diagnosis. People are doing that for depression, people are doing it for a number of other uh, indications. And then the third category is home testing. One of the things that gets in the way of telehealth um, value is, yes, Pat, you have a sore throat, you might have strep, now you gotta go somewhere and get a strep test. Well, why did you bother to do it virtually? You could have gone to urgent care and got all that done. So if we can do things that are analogous to how pregnancy testing has gone, I always remind people that when my mom conceived me, she had to have a rabbit killed to learn she was pregnant. Uh, now you can do it in the privacy of your own bathroom. The more stuff we can do like that, and there are companies that are moving in that direction, the more powerful telehealth will be. So those are three areas that I pay attention to in that regard. Oh, that's, you know, that's great. And when I hear you say that, I realize that not only is telehealth exploding, but all of these supporting services too are, explo are exploding. Um, now I want to ask you a question that I wonder about, and that is, 
um, what are the pros and cons of the different models of um, telehealth companies? Some of them have their own doctors. So when you call up, you talk to a doctor, it's not your doctor. And others, like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Doximity's dialer video, um, that uh, makes it really easy for even the most Luddite of doctors to be able to quickly and easily have a HIPAA-compliant call with their patient. Um, what, what do you think? Is there a role for both? Is one better than the other? Well, again, in fact, these are these are all just wonderful questions to, to dissect. So, so before we had a pandemic, uh, people who were members of health plans, which are, as you know, they overlap with patients, but they're not all patients. Or some of them are just well people who want to be insured, but they skew towards more of that demographic, uh, and those people, for the most part, felt like they should have a telehealth option. Uh, so health plans decided they should offer this as part of their benefits package and employers likewise. We as doctors were sort of, well, I'm not so sure. Maybe that's not a good idea. I've got to study it. How about if we publish some more papers? Maybe there's not enough data. And people got worn out asking us to participate. So they just formed these, like the Teladocs, the Amwells, full service providers. They'll get a doctor network in 50 states. Thank you very much. If you have a sniffles at nine o'clock at night, call, uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shield in Massachusetts, you'll be connected to a doctor and get your care done. Now that every doctor is, almost every doctor has participated and now is sort of offering it, I think it's a new ball game. The, the answer to your question is always better if your own clinician can take care of you. They know you, they have your records, but it's also good to get cared for. Um, and in the old days, I used to say, the problem with those solutions was that they were siloed, that you might get your um, earache taken care of by a teledoc doctor and your own physician would never know of it. Maybe you get on an antibiotic, something else happens, you get prescribed something that interacts with it and you get in trouble. So as you're, you're a HIT enthusiast, you know how important interoperability is as well. Uh, but nowadays I think the game has changed and doctors are offering these services and, and in my opinion, more and more Times the option will be, the best option will be for you to go through your own doctor or your doctor's practice to get this service delivered and not so much through the siloed uh, uh, services that we saw in the past. Yeah, that's interesting. That's my bias as well. And I like to think as I have for other forms of rapid delivery that um, that the kind of illnesses that are most amenable to services provided in that way with a doctor you don't know or an urgent care clinic where you don't know anybody are what I call the grandma diseases. You know, the ones be before we all went to the doctor, we used to go to our grandmother and she would take care yeah. of us because you were going to get, you were going to get better regardless. <laughs> since we're, uh, since we're talking about that, this is a nice segue to a question I want to ask you. Um, there's been winners and losers because of the pandemic. And the most obvious one that comes to mind is the one we're using today, which is Zoom, real yes. winner. Um, but um, Teladoc also uh, has done really well. And uh, particularly with its recent high profile um, acquisition of Livongo, which is now gonna make them big telehealth. Mm -hmm. My question to you is, is is big telehealth going to dominate in the same way as big tech, you know, like Facebook and Amazon, 
squeeze out the little guy and uh, diminish competition. Should we, should we be worried about this? Probably in the near term, I don't think so, uh, because there's still enough innovation needed that there will be a robust um, startup economy and a robust uh, venture investment portfolio around moving this needle forward. As we sort of said earlier, yes, we brought the doctor's office into your living room, but that's quite a limited view of healthcare. The, the idea of having it completely digitized, um, having your service offerings sometimes involve a person, sometimes involve a chatbot, sometimes involve remote monitoring technologies, having it all integrated. There's a, there's a lot to be done there. Um, and so, I, and I admire the folks at Teladoc. I always have admired them for having grown that business the way they have. They, they provided a, really a, a model for all of us to, to aspire to in terms of, of growing telehealth. Uh, so this is, is not about criticizing them at all, but just to say that, um, you know, the bigger you get, the more you go after a, a certain sort of focused sector and there will be plenty of people around them that are still chipping away at the disruptions, I think, for, for a time. In 10 years, per, perhaps there will be, as you say, big telehealth dominating um, in the way Microsoft and Google and, uh, and Facebook and whatnot dominate now, but I, we still got a ways to go, I think, before we get there. Okay, well, so we have a lot of innovation to look forward to. Yes. Um, so I want to I close with this, and that is um, you've been in the telehealth space for a very long time. In fact, um, I learned that this is not your first time being president of the ATA. It's actually your second time. Congratulations. Okay. And so what I wanted to have you um, share with us is is what keeps you up at night when you think about the future of telehealth, which I assume you do all the time in your current position? Well, I sleep very well, uh, happily, because I'm a pretty active guy and you need your sleep. So I don't think anything keeps me up, but, but with that joke aside, I know exactly what you're, you're asking about. And there, there are a few things. Currently, I think the hot topic that, that worries me is we, we've somehow... And, and it's interesting, society has a way, especially in this era of dumbing things down because everything's about a click or clickbait or a short headline and you kind of read something and you move on. So people have got it in their heads, both on the provider and the patient side that telehealth peaked and now it's going down and maybe that means that it wasn't a thing. And so there's a lot to unpack there, but I think on the provider side, we really need to do two things pronto. One is each organization, whether it be specialty society or practice, needs to decide what they're able to do with this delivery mechanism and what needs to come in the office and just stick to it. Um, we had a situation where we couldn't see people in the office, so it was, oh, we'll do everything virtually. And there's, that's not healthy, any more healthy than doing everything in the office, right? So we need to sort that one out. The other thing we need to do is we need to go to our payer colleagues and have some, and this is even harder, I think, but have some heart-to-heart -heart conversations about their worry, which is duplicative services. Their worry about overpaying for things, about costs going up. We owe it to them to have an honest dialogue about the value that telehealth can bring and 
put in place some safeguards so that we don't end up seeing someone. I had a patient two days ago, I did a telehealth visit with a woman who had a bleeding lesion on her hand. I was in the office the next day we saw her in the office. So I split my bill between the evaluation on telehealth and the procedure on the next day. I didn't overbill, but someone else could have, and we've got to, we've got to make sure we don't do that. And again, the third one, which I mentioned to you earlier, is just we as an industry need to make it easier for people to interact with us. Not just telehealth, but healthcare at large, certainly the telehealth, the digital health component. A lot of what we have in the industry is for engineers, designed by engineers, and it's just not simple enough for people. And People get tired of it and they move on, and it's your health we're talking about. If you get frustrated with a a Bluetooth earpiece and don't want to use it, well, put your phone up your ear. But if you get frustrated with your your Bluetooth uh, blood pressure cuff and don't take your blood pressure, that's a different matter and we need to own that. Well, uh, very good advice. And I'm glad that you don't stay up at night, get plenty of sleep, that's good. Um, anything else you want to add? No, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And, and uh, I, I think uh, audience members, now they can find uh, americantelemed.org is our website. They can find me. Uh, I have my own website these days, joecavidar.com. People can email me. They can. Uh, there's a lot of resource on the American Telemedicine Association. People should become members. And we really thank you for the opportunity to, to chat with you today. Thank you. To learn more about how COVID-19 is affecting care delivery, See the show notes or visit AJMC.com. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.